morning. Kevin, I really want to say sorry in public for the trouble I gave you in making you read all the names, although I'm not going to preach from the passage. <laughs> My idea was to just make him read something related to Christmas. I think uh, I hear some gasps from the back. Yes, I'm not going to take you through all the 42 generations, uh, but I do want to say that it is a very, very unique passage related to Christmas. Uh, if the Gospel of Mark was the first gospel in the order in the books of the New Testament, then we wouldn't have seen any kind of a continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. But you come to the Gospel of Matthew, in God's sovereignty, that's the first gospel that we have in the New Testament. Matthew begins by saying, this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And immediately, you go back right to the Old Testament, where he is mentioning the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, and connecting the story of Jesus back to the Old Testament. That's all I want to say about the passage. Uh, tomorrow is what the world celebrates as Christmas, what some Christians celebrate as Christmas as well. So in keeping with Christmas, uh, I do want to speak on something that is apologetic in nature. A lot of people have been asking me questions about the uniqueness of Christ. What is the uniqueness of Christ? Why do we worship him? Um, what are the unique qualities about Jesus Christ and his claims. And so I thought uh, this is the right time to speak about it. This is not an exposition of a particular passage, which I always do, but this is uh, from various scriptures, and uh, I'd like to talk to you about the uniqueness of Christ from the Bible. I'd like to at least give you five ways in which Christ is unique among the religions of the world. So uh, please make a note of this, and you'll have the outline very soon. Uh, this is a good apologetic from the Bible as to how Christ is unique among all the religions of the world. Ajit, can you hear me clearly? Okay. All right. So a kindergarten teacher was giving an exam in drawing or painting, and she gave out sheets, and a lot of kids were seated, and they were all painting uh, uh, different themes and different topics that were given to each one. And um, there was one particular girl that was seated at the back, and after an hour or so, she, uh, the teacher went to the little girl and asked, what are you painting? And she said, I'm painting God. And the teacher quipped back, and she said, well, nobody knows how God looks, but she said, I'm almost done. You'll all know in a while how he looks. You'll all know in a while how he looks because I'm almost done. I know how God looks. Often we have caricatures about God. And Christmas shatters all those caricatures because God, the Word, became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, when we look into the face of Jesus, we're actually, looking, we're actually looking into the face of God, the very face of God himself. So let me begin with the story of uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson, a familiar story which I've shared several times here on this pulpit. Some of you are already smiling, but for those of you who've forgotten about it, hopefully, I think you can pause for a little chuckle. Uh, Sherlock, Watson, uh, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Watson, uh, they were on a camping trip out in the woods, and uh, after some 
heavy liquid refreshments. They all went to bed in their tents. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, Sherlock Holmes wakes up, and then he nudges Watson with his elbow. Watson, wake up. Look up into the sky and tell me what you see. And uh, Watson, rubbing his eyes, he looks up into the sky and he says, well, I see millions and millions of stars out there in the sky. So Sherlock Holmes asks him, what do you conclude from that, Watson? And Watson, just coming out of his sleep, he says, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions and millions of planets and potentially billions and billions of satellites as well. Astrologically, I deduce that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I think that the time is about a quarter past three. Meteorologically, tomorrow I think it will be a beautiful morning for us. Theologically, this is all the product of a grand designer, and we are all so tiny and minute. Well, what does that tell you, Holmes? Sherlock Holmes pauses, looks at him and says, Watson, you idiot, somebody has stolen our tent. That's what is important. Somebody has stolen our tent, and that's why you're able to see all the stars up in the sky. Often, in our theological language sometimes, with those big words, we miss the essence of what we are really talking about sometimes. And that's true often of Christmas. We all know what Christmas is. We know the reason for the season and all of that. But I think to understand what Christmas really is, we must understand who Jesus really is and his uniqueness. Because Jesus is not part of the story of Christmas. Now listen to the statement very carefully. Jesus is not part of the story of Christmas, but Christmas is part of the grand story of the second person of the Trinity who came in the person of Jesus. Christmas is part of the grand story of the second person of the Trinity who came as Jesus into this world. Years ago, Dr. Sarvepali Radhakrishnan, the second president of our great nation, he made this comment. He said, Christians are just ordinary people making extraordinary claims. Christians are just ordinary people making extraordinary claims. And in one sense, he was right, because we do make extraordinary claims, not about ourselves, but we make those extraordinary claims about Jesus, because he is unique. And we affirm that he is final, and he has no parallel in the history of the world. He is unique and has no parallel in the history of the world. W.E.H. Leckie, uh, he was a historian, a famous historian, he is no friend to, to things spiritual. He once said this, the character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the longest incentive in its practice and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisition of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. What a powerful statement about the uniqueness of Christ by a secular historian who is no Christian at all or no friend to things that are Christian. So the question comes up, which is a basic question that we can all ask from all of these comments that I've made so far. In what ways is Jesus unique when there are so many claimants to religious leadership? In what way is Jesus unique when there are so many so-called divine beings claiming to be divine or unique in themselves? So what I'd like to do for the rest of the time is to attempt to introduce here 
five consecutive events or aspects from the earthly or historical life of Jesus. And I want to suggest that the facts indicate that he is unique and he has no parallel and he has no competitor in any other religion or ideology. Firstly, uh, if you can get to the outline, please. I'll just follow that outline, but uh, it is not an exposition of any particular passage once again. I'll take you through almost the entire New Testament to show you that he is really unique among the religions of the world. Firstly, I want to talk about the uniqueness of his claims. The uniqueness of his claims. We all know that the founder of every religion, of course, to some degree, is unique. But what we're talking about is that there is something unique about the uniqueness of Christ. And the first one relates to his extraordinary claims. His extraordinary claims. You know, there is nothing more disturbing about Jesus of Nazareth than the self-centeredness of his claims. There is nothing more disturbing about Jesus of Nazareth than the self-centeredness of his claims. He always taught about himself. He always talked about himself. He always, in his teaching, there was a prominence of the personal pronoun, I, I, I say this to you. He was always teaching about himself. And although it is true that he announced the arrival of the kingdom of God, it is only, he said, by adding that he is the one who came to inaugurate the kingdom. And although he talked about the fatherhood of God, he said he was the father's unique son. And I find it very, very interesting to summarize the claims of Jesus, the unique claims of Jesus, into three categories. And years ago, probably 10 years ago, when I was wrestling with this in my own mind, I think these are the three things that gave me a lot of comfort from the Bible. So I'm giving you something that helped me a lot and something that is very, very personal to me. Number one, I can summarize the claims of Jesus, his unique claims, into three words. Number one, the first word is the word fulfillment. It is the word fulfillment. When you look at the Gospel of Mark, the first recorded words of Jesus in the Greek language, in the Gospel of Mark, are pepli rotai hokairos. Fulfilled is the time. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Fulfilled is the time. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A little while later, he went to his his hometown of Nazareth and he goes on the Sabbath day to the synagogue and then he picks up a scroll what we have in our books as Isaiah and he goes to Isaiah chapter 61 and then he opens the scroll and begins to read the spirit of the Lord is upon me he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor and on and on and on and then he wound up the scroll gave it to the synagogue attendant sat down and he said this Pepli Rotai which means, verily I say unto you, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So what Jesus was saying was this. Isaiah spoke about him. And then in the, in the rest of his life, he went on to talk about the fact that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Moses spoke about him. And then on one occasion, he said this. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and blessed are your ears, for they hear. 
for many prophets and wise men wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And they wanted to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. In other words, what Jesus was saying was, they were living in the age of anticipation. You are living in the time of fulfillment. Fulfillment is the word. Which means, in Jesus' own estimation of himself, he did not see himself as one more prophet in the long succession of prophets that God had sent to visit mankind. He rather saw himself as a fulfillment of all prophecies. And all the converging streams of prophecies found their fulfillment in him. Number one is the word fulfillment. Then there's a second word, and that is the word intimacy. That is the word intimacy. Jesus claimed a relationship of intimacy with God the Father that was shared by no other being. He claimed a relationship of intimacy with God the Father that was claimed by no other being. We have to admit that the title, the Son of God, is a generic title because in the Old Testament it is used of several people. It is used of Adam, it is used of angels, it is used of Solomon, it is also used of the children of Israel. But the way that Jesus used the phrase Son of God, applying it to himself, does seem to give us a different conclusion. Because he never applied the phrase son of God to himself without using the definite article, the, before it. On one occasion he said, no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son. And they to whom he chooses to reveal him. In other words, Jesus said that there was a unique reciprocal relationship between him and God the father that was shared by no one else. By claiming intimacy with God, in fact, he was making himself equal to God. When he said he was a son of God, he was actually making himself equal with God. So the first one is the word fulfillment, and the second word is the word intimacy. Thirdly is the word, the Greek word exousia, or translated authority. The contemporaries of Jesus were absolutely astonished by the authoritative way in which he spoke. He was quite unlike the scribes who taught at his time. The scribes never taught in public without quoting some other authority. But Jesus always quoted his own authority. His favorite formula was to say, I say unto you. I say unto you. So that was his favorite formula. He taught with authority. In addition to teaching with authority, he claimed authority to forgive sins as well. You know, on one occasion, he healed a Pharisee. I'm sorry, he healed a paralytic. And before he healed that paralytic, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven thee. And all of these people are surrounding him. They thought he was blaspheming. But Jesus said, The reason I have done it the way I have is so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he claimed authority to forgive sins as well. In in addition to his authority to teach well and to forgive sins, he also claimed authority to judge the world as well. He said he would judge the world. Jesus said he would come back at the end of history and he would sit on the throne of glory and all the nations would be gathered and would be paraded from in front of him and he would begin to separate them as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. In other words, what Jesus was claiming was that he held in his hands the eternal destiny of the nations. Fulfillment, intimacy, and authority. 
Now, these claims of Jesus to fulfill prophecy, to be equal to God, to forgive sins, to judge the world are so outrageous. But he was so admirable that even those who rejected his claims admired his character. And far from being obsessed about himself, he was so preoccupied with the will of God, the glory of God, and the welfare of others. He never thought about himself. He always was preoccupied about serving others. Now, this brings us to a very startling contrast. Hear me, please. Jesus' claims sound very proud, but he was the most humble of all men. He made extraordinary claims about himself, but he was the most balanced and modest of all people. His teaching was fundamentally self-centered. I, 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 me, 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 he said, but he was absolutely unself-centered and gave himself away in the self-sacrificial service of others. He made himself the central figure on the judgment day, but then he immediately got on his hands and knees, took a towel, and began to wash his disciples' feet. The Lord and the judge became his servant. There have been many self-centered leaders, and they made very proud claims about themselves, and they all behaved like it. On the other hand, there have been very, very humble people, and those humble people never made any proud claims or audacious claims about themselves. It is, you see, the combination of authority and humility, of self-centered claims and unself-centered character, which is what we say is unique in the history of all mankind. So that is the first thing, the uniqueness of his claims. You know, the Scottish theologian James Stewart put it well and very eloquently well this way. He said, talking about Jesus, he said, he was the meekest and the lowliest of all the sons of men. Yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. And yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. He was, he was, uh, his presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so kind or compassionate to sinners and yet no one ever spoke such red hot scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion, he demanded of the Pharisees how they were expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions. Yet for sheer stark realism, he has all of us self-styled realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing his disciples' feet. Yet masterfully, he stood into the temple. And the hucksters and the money changers fell over one another in a mad rush to get away from the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others. Yet at the last, he himself did not save. There is nothing in history, says James Stewart, like the union of contrasts that confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. It is a startling coalescence of those claims, extraordinary claims, self-centered claims, and unself-centered character is what is unique about the claims of Jesus. That's the first thing, the uniqueness of his claims. Then I move very quickly to the uniqueness of his death. Secondly, the uniqueness of his death. The circumstances of the death of Jesus set him apart from the deaths of all other religious leaders. You know, the other religious leaders, they died in a ripe old age. For example, 
Uh, Muhammad at the age of 62, Confucius at 72, Buddha at the age of 80, Moses at 120. They all died with the disciples surrounding them and having successfully accomplished the task which they set themselves. In stark contrast, Jesus died in his 30s by the horrible death called crucifixion, repudiated by his nation, forsaken by his disciples, and deserted, it appeared, even by his own father, And that's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It almost seemed like it was a total failure. Yet in spite of the ignominy of the cross and the shame of the cross, the cross has become the symbol of the Christian faith. The followers of every other religion talk about their leader's teaching or their character or their sacrifices But the followers of Jesus always talk about his death. That is central to us. His death is central to us because it was central to him in the first place. Now listen to me, please. Did he not repeatedly predict the necessity of his suffering, saying the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and die? Did he not refer to his death as the hour for which he had come into this world? And did he not on his last night on earth, as he took the cup Did he not make a memorial for himself by asking the disciples to break bread and to drink wine in memory of him? And remember, as he was speaking to the disciples the night before he died, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of a new covenant with God in which the forgiveness of sins is made available. So what Jesus was saying was that God actually was forming a new covenant or a new agreement with the human race, an agreement in which the forgiveness of sins is made available. Forgiveness for your sins and forgiveness for my sins. And I want to remind you what we did this morning, breaking bread and drinking wine, death speaks to us through these symbols. Death speaks to us through these symbols. The bread does not symbolize his body as he lived on earth, but as it was broken on the cross. The wine does not symbolize his blood as it flowed in his veins during his lifetime, but as it was spilled for us on the cross. And so death is central to his mission. So Jesus regarded his death not as a tragic or a premature end to an otherwise promising career, but as its intended climax by which he would achieve what he had come to accomplish. And what that is, the rest of the New Testament writers tell us clearly with one voice. The New Testament writers link his death with our sin, and they say that death is the penalty for sin throughout the Bible, and he died in our place, though we were the sinners, bearing the wrath of God in his own body, and exhausting the wrath of God in his own body. And that's why Peter could write, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's why Paul could say he actually became a sin for us. He became a curse for us. And that's why John writes, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Now, this concept is almost beyond belief that the God of the universe, the creator and the almighty God, the sustainer of this vast universe should have loved us And not just loved us, but should have pursued us in the person of his son to that desolate, agonizing death on the cross where he bore our sin. 
He assumed our guilt. He took our place and he died our death. That's the uniqueness of his death. He died so you and I could be forgiven, taking the wrath of God in his own body. There was a Japanese Christian between the world wars. His name was Kagawa. He came to Christ and he said this, I'm grateful for Shinto, for Buddhism, and for Confucianism. I owe much to these traditional faiths. Yet these three faiths utterly failed to minister to my heart's deepest needs. I was a pilgrim journeying upon a long road that had no turning. I was weary. I was footsore. I wandered through a dark and dismal world where tragedies were thick. Buddhism teaches great compassion. But since the beginning of time, who has declared this is my blood of a new covenant with God in which the forgiveness of sins is made available? And he ends by saying, in Christianity, God is merciful to sinners, not because of their good works, but because of Christ's sacrifice for them on the cross. So Kagawa, the Japanese Christian, found the uniqueness of Christ in the uniqueness of his death. Now, during this Christmas season, I love this uh, carol that we sing, and I've been singing this right from my childhood. One of the stanzas by Isaac Watts goes this way. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. That is the uniqueness of his death. So the first thing is the uniqueness of his claims. And secondly, it is the uniqueness of his death. Thirdly and briefly, I come to the uniqueness of his resurrection. The uniqueness of his resurrection. Now let's be very, very clear about what the Christian claim is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not that his influence outlived his death. It is not that we can sing that Jesus lives in the same way the Latin American students chant, Che Guevara lives. No, that's not what we mean by resurrection. Now we also don't mean that Jesus was resuscitated and brought back to this life. For example, that's exactly what he did to Lazarus as well. He brought Lazarus back to this life only for Lazarus to die again. And that's what aroused C.S. Lewis's sympathy when he talked about Lazarus and he said, poor Lazarus had to do his dying all over again. But what do we mean by resurrection? What we mean by resurrection is that Jesus was rescued from the natural post-mortem process of decay and decomposition His body was changed into a new vehicle for his personality with new powers, undreamed of faculties. He was immortal and he would never die again. That is what we mean by resurrection. Now the cumulative historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is massive and several books have been written about it. In fact, I myself have written several articles about it and taught in this church some five years for about three weeks on the historical aspects of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if you're interested in that, there are several books available. You can pick up any one. And my idea is not here to get to the historical aspects of it, but move beyond that and see the uniqueness in the relevance of it to us this morning. What is the relevance of the unique, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its uniqueness for us? Firstly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ vindicated Jesus, reversing the verdict that the Jewish and the Roman courts had pronounced on him and displayed publicly that he had not died in vain. 
his death was not in vain. In the book of Romans chapter 4, last verse, Paul says, he was given over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. He was raised to life for our justification. Secondly, by the resurrection, God demonstrated the hope that we can have for the future, that one day we too can be resurrected and have a body just like the body of Jesus if we believe in him. Now, our world needs this message today because it doesn't have hope and it is scared of death. Ravi Chan was talking about it. it. We are scared of death. We are full of fear about death. You know, Woody Allen speaks for most of us when he said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. There's a great lack of hope in the world today and the resurrection can give us that hope. That's the uniqueness of his resurrection. So firstly, the uniqueness of his claims, the uniqueness of his death, the uniqueness of his resurrection, and we underplay this in our theology. We have something called the uniqueness of his exaltation as well. The uniqueness of his exaltation. What is the Christian claim or the Bible's claim about the exaltation of Jesus? The claim is that the same Jesus who humbled himself to plumb the depths of agony and pain on the cross has now been exalted to the highest place of honor and highest executive power and authority in the universe, as we symbolically say, seated at the right hand of God. Seated at the right hand of God. Now, Paul wrote, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. If I have to translate that Greek phrase literally, I'll have to say God has super exalted him. That's the apt translation. God has super exalted him, which means God has exalted him so highly and gave him a rank that is above every rank and a name that is above every name and an honor that is above every honor, a dignity above every dignity, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is curious to the glory of God the Father. That's the uniqueness of his exaltation. But Paul, I think, was quoting from an earlier hymn when he was talking about this. But whether it was Paul who was making this up and writing it, or he was quoting it from an earlier hymn, Paul is certainly endorsing what he's writing, and he's writing it with conviction. Actually, Paul is going back to the Old Testament and quoting from uh, Isaiah 45, verse 28, where Yahweh, the God in the Old Testament, as he's revealed to us in the Old Testament, is soliloquizing, talking to himself, and he's saying this, I swear by my name that to me every knee will bow. With astonishing audacity, Paul is taking those very words, where they apply to Yahweh in the Old Testament, and applying them to Jesus. And saying, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the uniqueness of his exaltation. And so when the Christian goes out into the world and preaches the gospel, it is nothing wrong because he has been exalted and he, the exalted one is the one who gives us the command to go and preach the gospel. And if God wants universal homage to be paid to Jesus, we should want it too. 
That's the uniqueness of his exaltation. So the uniqueness of his claims, the uniqueness of his death, the uniqueness of his resurrection, the uniqueness of his exaltation, and fifthly, the uniqueness of his gift of the Spirit. Lastly, the uniqueness of his gift of the Spirit. During the public ministry of Jesus, after he had gone, he said after he had gone back to the Father, he would send somebody in his place whom he called the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Truth or the Comforter or the Counselor. And the primary or the major ministry of the Holy Spirit in this world is to bring Jesus out of history into experience for you and I to relate to him personally. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring Jesus out of history into my experience. So let me expand on this for a few moments before I conclude. Firstly, the Holy Spirit makes the presence of Jesus contemporary. The Holy Spirit makes the presence of Jesus contemporary. So we can no longer think of Jesus as somebody from a distant past who lived and died. But we can think of him as somebody who's alive as somebody who we can relate to and know more of him by relating to him. Paul says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. Paul is able to know Jesus Christ and he's talking about knowing Jesus Christ only through the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit makes the presence of Jesus contemporary. Secondly, the Holy Spirit makes the presence of Jesus universal. He makes the presence of Jesus universal. When Jesus was on earth, his presence was localized. He was a man. He was a human being. His presence was localized. And so his disciples were often separated from him. When he was in Galilee, they were in Jerusalem and vice versa. They were separated from him. But the Holy Spirit has universalized the presence of Jesus. And that's why Jesus can say to us, I am with you always until the end of the age. I am with you always until the end of the age. So the Holy Spirit makes the presence of Jesus contemporary. The Holy Spirit makes the presence of Jesus universal. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit makes the presence of Jesus internal as well. He makes the presence of Jesus internal. In the Old Testament, God had promised, I will put my spirit in them. And Jesus in the New Testament repeats the same words and he says, he will be, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be with you and he will be in you. He'll be with you and he'll be in you. He was talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Lord Wraith, who was the first Director General of the British Broadcasting Corporation, he once made this comment about the Holy Spirit. He said, the mystery and the magic of the indwelling Christ the mystery and the magic of the indwelling Christ. Christ dwelling in us by his spirit. Christ dwelling in my person, in your person, by his spirit. It is a most marvelous reality and it is a secret of all Christian discipleship. It is a secret of all holy living. It is a secret of all Christ-likeness and Christ-like living. Archbishop William Temple of Canterbury he once made this comment so eloquently. He said, it is futile giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and asking me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. There's no point in giving me a life like Jesus 
and telling me to live like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I can write plays like that. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I can live a life like that. That is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that is a secret of Christian discipleship. So the Holy Spirit makes the presence of Jesus contemporary. The Holy Spirit makes the presence of Jesus universal. The Holy Spirit makes the presence of Jesus internal. And fourthly and lastly, the Holy Spirit makes the presence of Jesus communal as well. My relationship with you as a believer, as a believer in Christ, our fellowship together with one another as followers of Jesus Christ is our common participation in the Holy Spirit. That is our common participation in the Holy Spirit because if he dwells in you and you and you and you and me, he is our common share. And that's why we have this fellowship. That's why we have that beautiful fellowship. One more quote and I move to my final thought. Bishop Stephen Neal said this, within the fellowship of those who are bound together by the personal loyalty to Jesus Christ, the relationship of love reaches an intimacy and intensity unknown elsewhere. Friendship between the friends of Jesus of Nazareth is unlike any other friendship. This ought to be normal experience within Christian community where it is experienced, especially across the barriers of race, nationality, and language. It is one of the most convincing evidences of the continuing activity of Jesus in this world. Where there is love within the community of the the Messiah, particularly across races and nationalities, he says it is the most convincing evidence of the continuing activity of Jesus in this world right now. So we have five aspects of the uniqueness of Christ that we saw. The first one is the uniqueness of his claims. The second one is the uniqueness of his death that we saw, the uniqueness of his resurrection, the uniqueness of his exaltation, and the uniqueness of the gift of the Spirit. I think the evidence is very, very persuasive indeed. And in conclusion, let me say that these five aspects speak to our human need. And so let me just uh, conclude with a story that points us to Christmas and about how this unique Jesus came to us into this world. The story is told of a sheep herder in New Zealand who woke up one morning to find himself in a dilemma. He had two sheep, two mother sheep that were giving birth to their own little ones and ended up in their own ways of misfortune. The first one, the first sheep that was about to give birth to its own little one died after giving birth. But on the other hand, the mother that gave birth lost the baby sheep. So on the one hand, the shepherd had a motherless lamb. On the other hand, he had a lambless mother. And the solution seemed rather obvious, didn't it? So what he, had to, uh, what he thought he could do was just carry this little lamb over to the mother and have it nurture and give it life. But it's not as simple as we think it is. For every time the shepherd took this little one over to the mother, the mother sensing a different aroma just backed off. And then the shepherd thought about a very ingenious plan. He went and found the dead body of that little lamb and he cut open, made made that into a fur coat, covered this little lamb now with that fur coat and now took that to the mother. The mother about to back off now sensed a different aroma, one that was familiar to it and started giving it life and nurturing it and giving it milk. That to us paints a clear picture of our alienation from God. 
I, in my own righteousness, can never approach God. I need an alien righteousness, the righteousness of a savior. And that's the good news of Christmas. Rebbe Chen read to us this morning. I bring to us, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto us in the town of Nazareth is born a savior, his Christ the Lord. Thank you for your patience and may God bless you all even as you contemplate on this. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the fact that your word is clear and your word talks about the uniqueness of your son who was born to us this season. He is unique in every way, O Lord. He is unique in the way he made his claims. He is unique in his death. He is unique in his resurrection, in his exaltation, and in his gift of the Spirit. We want to thank you for your continuing activity in this world through your spirit. I pray, O Lord, that even as we think about these truths, we will exalt this unique Christ in our minds, in our lives, in our speeches and actions as well, O Lord. Father, I pray for our church. I pray, O Lord, that ours will be a church that always exalts Christ and talks about his uniqueness to the rest of the world. We want to thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name.